0: Welcome back to the Thinking Out Loud podcast. As always, I am your host, Dave Hallahan, and I'm excited about today's episode. We have a return guest, Mark Charles, who was on the show in July of 2020. 2019 it's now 2020 people and Mark Charles is running for president as an independent candidate and he has been campaigning over the last uh, like eight or nine months to the indigenous people of America and so we're catching up to see how that is going what he has been up to and what comes next in his campaign uh, we also discuss some of the other things going on in the current political uh, arena. We talk about the impeachment of Donald Trump. And when Mark and I recorded, it was the day after the assassination of General uh, Qasem Soleimani. And so I got Mark's initial thoughts on on that. So you'll hear all of that in this episode. Uh, you can hear... Even more of it if you were a patron over at patreon.com slash thinking out loud pod where my patrons have already received this episode uh, with some additional content as well. And so they heard a little bit more than you're going to, but uh, you'll definitely get a good sense of where Mark is at in his campaign and what's going on, uh, his thoughts on what's going on in the current political arena. And many of you, um, many of you I know, you talk often about being tired of the two-party system and um, having to choose between the lesser of two evils and how Republicans and Democrats are the same. And... Regardless if that is true or not or how true that is, I would encourage you to check out Mark Charles at markcharles2020.com to see what his campaign is all about. I think his his campaign and uh, the major points that he's pointing to are important things that we as an American people need to grasp and wrestle with. So I would encourage you to check out all that he's doing over at markcharles 2020. Uh, he released a book in November called Unsettling Truths The Ongoing Dehumanizing Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery. That is currently on sale at Amazon for $12.59. So you can check that out if you would like as well. Feel free to stick around after the interview for a song that has kind of been on repeat for me uh, over the last week or so that I'm kind of praying this song it's a prophetic vision uh, audrey assad she repurposed the uh, the song the battle hymn of the republic uh, she called it your peace will make us one and as we are in unsettling times my prayer has just been that the peace of god would make us one so f- that song will play at the end of my interview with mark charles but welcome back to the podcast mark charles
1: Um, yeah, so please let me allow just to start by introducing myself. So yes. for, especially for some of your listeners who may not have heard me before or might be new to your show. So Yat A, Mark Charles, In the Navajo culture, when we introduce ourselves, we always give our four clans. We're matrilineal as a people and our identities come from our mother's mother. So my mother's mother happens to be American of Dutch heritage, which is why I say translated that means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my father's mother, is Tohiglini, and that is the waters that flow together people. My third clan, my mother's father, is also And my fourth clan, my father's father, is and that's the Bitter Water clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. I'm calling you today from Washington, D.C., which is the traditional land of the Piscataway. Uh, The Piscataway are the native nation that lived here. They still have, they still have, they still are here in D.C., but these were the people who were removed and um, oppressed so that the District of Columbia, the state of Virginia, the state of Maryland could be built and established. And I like to acknowledge the people whose land I'm on no matter where I go. And so I want to obviously acknowledge the Piscataway people and thank them for their years centuries of stewardship of these lands. I also want to acknowledge that you are in in New Jersey and you are on the lands of the Lenape. And I want to acknowledge the Lenape people as the indigenous hosts of the land where you are coming from and where your podcast is at and uh, honor them for the stewardship that they've had of their lands for um again centuries and centuries
0: yes thank you for doing that i uh i appreciate that and uh, as you uh talk about uh you introduce yourself and you you refer to uh your your ancestry and your clans that uh you come from um as you have been campaigning you have been campaigning largely to uh you've made it a point to campaign first to the indigenous people um of what is now the United States of America uh and in the next step in doing that you are preparing um kind of this uh campaign movement called res the Vote uh what exactly is that and what are you seeking to do with that
1: Yeah so thank you so res the Vote is actually a very exciting initiative that we're doing and when I announced my campaign and actually even before I announced one of my Core values is I deeply believe that if you want to be president of these lands, we call the United States of America, the lands that encompass Turtle Island, the most respectful and appropriate place to begin that campaign is not in Iowa or New Hampshire, but is actually speaking to the indigenous hosts, the indigenous nations of Turtle Island. And so I had a, a strong commitment at the beginning of my campaign that I would campaign, not just symbolically, but really extensively, first and foremost, to the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island. And so I my first campaign event that I held um, through my campaign was actually back on the Navajo Nation in the chapter house where I used to live. Um, then I went to the Indian Public Cultural Center in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and later went to the Denver Indian Center and then to uh, South Dakota and on Pine Ridge. And then I was at the Frank Lemaire Native American Presidential Forum in Iowa and then back to uh other other places in in uh South Dakota, Rosebud, and went to tribes in Minnesota and Wisconsin and Oregon and back to New Mexico back to Arizona. And so I've I've made it very intentional that for the past seven months I've been campaigning first and foremost to The native peoples of Turtle Island, uh, and bringing my message there. I've I've written op eds for native uh, web news websites. I've done interviews with native uh, native journalists, and uh, have really tried extensively to reach out to our native peoples and to allow our people to to campaign first and foremost to native peoples. And as we were kind of doing this, going through the process, we realized that you know we did this because. The way the Democrat and Republican primaries are set up is uh, those primaries, the first caucus is in Iowa and the first primary is in New Hampshire. When you look a little deeper, Iowa is the sixth widest state in the country and New Hmm. Hampshire is the fourth. Iowa has virtually the highest percent of private lands of any state in the nation. And New Hampshire has one of the highest rates, if not the highest rate, of home ownership. Iowa has a state law stating that they have to be the first caucus or the first primary in the country. And New Hampshire has a state law stating that they have to be the first primary, still allowing Iowa to be the first caucus. And because both the Democrats and the Republicans buy into the system, the system that legally mandates candidates have to campaign specifically and almost exclusively for nearly a year Hmm. to the white landowners of Iowa and New Hampshire. Now this helps us understand what's happened in the democratic primary field, which started 2019 with one of the most largest, as well as most diverse pool of presidential candidates our nation has ever seen in a single election. The first debate in June had 20 candidates over two nights, five of whom were candidates of color. And by the final debate in December, that number had been whittled down to seven. And only one of them was a person of color. And for the debate that's happening in January, not a single person of color has qualified to be on that debate stage. So even before the first caucus, even before the first primary, the Democratic Party has literally weeded out all of the candidates of color from the primary field. Now, some will say, well, they weren't good enough at sunrising, they weren't good enough at polling. Well, yeah, because why? They had to campaign extensively to white landowners in Iowa and New Hampshire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if, if the candidates were required to campaign on native reservations or in black urban centers, yeah, the other candidates, the white candidate, would, would not be doing very well at all if they had to literally <laughs> right. go there, spend all their time there. And so this is one of the reasons I decided to run as an independent, because I didn't want to be a part of that process.
0: Right, right. And you, and it, this kind of goes back to, you had said when we talked before, and you've said it and multiple times since you've launched your campaign, and I'm sure even before you launched your campaign, that the, the Constitution of America is working for those who crafted it for white landowning men. Absolutely. And this goes even deeper than just the Constitution, as you've laid out uh, for us the the laws that require uh, presidential nominees to campaign uh, extensively in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire.
1: Yeah, I mean, literally, we have legally set up white landowning men in Iowa and New Hampshire as the gatekeepers for presidential politics. And I just refused to take part in that. So, I, in an effort to decenter whiteness—not to oppress, not to tear down, but to decenter whiteness—I decided to run as an independent, so that the white landowning men in Iowa, New Hampshire, wouldn't be the gatekeepers for my campaign. Now, this has cost me a lot in publicity. It has cost me a lot in terms of fundraising dollars, at least initially but it also means that while all of these other candidates are dropping by the wayside moment by moment my campaign is actually gaining and building some momentum now one of the challenges we face is there's a deadline for when the campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire happens which is the caucuses which are February 3rd in Iowa and The primaries, which is, I think, less than a week later in New Hampshire. And so res the vote is an initiative by our campaign to, um, as an independent candidate to get on the ballot, I need signatures in all 50 states. Actually, there's about three states I can get on the ballot just through having, um, paying a fee. But in most of the states, there are signatures required. And every state has a different number of signatures and a different time when you can start collecting, a different time when you have to stop collecting. And some have really extensive guidelines of you have to collect it from these counties or from these demographics of people um, who have voted or who are registered in this way, so on and so forth. But So every state has its own kind of set of guidelines of how you need to collect these signatures and when they have to be turned in by. And so what we decided to do is to take the week before the Iowa caucuses. And so we're looking at the week of the 27th of January. And we wanted to visit some key states that allow me to begin collecting signatures and to try and see if we can actually get on the ballot in those states, even before the first caucus in Iowa or the first primary in New Hampshire. And we wanted to collect these signatures first and foremost on Native reservations within Native nations or in Native urban community centers. Literally allowing the indigenous hosts of Turtle Island a chance to stand up and speak first before the white landowners in Iowa and New Hampshire. We did some research uh, with some of our volunteers a few months ago, and we looked at the number of signatures required for the 2016 election in all 50 states, and we compared that to the 2010 census data. And we learned that in virtually every state, the number of natives over the age of 18 exceeds the number of signatures required in each state to get me on the ballot. Hmm. What that means is Indian country alone has the potential to put me on the ballot in virtually every state in this country. Hmm. Now, of course, we're not going to only collect signatures from Native peoples. Right. But this message is incredibly empowering to our people, to Indian yeah. country, that has been marginalized and even disenfranchised from the voting process in our nation for centuries, literally.
0: Yeah, and that's what I love about uh, the this uh, campaign, this uh, initiative, Res the Vote, is because it's not it's not just symbolic, you are actually empowering uh, the indigenous people of what is now the United States of America, you are uh, giving them voice and say, and uh, you have been vocal about uh, many of the Democratic candidates um, calling uh, America a a country built um, by on immigration. Um, and that is necessarily erasing a history of slavery, but also a history of the indigenous people that were here long before uh, any immigrants got here. And so you are you're giving that voice back to the indigenous people.
1: Absolutely. And that's one of the things we have to even understand is there's a mythology in America that says we are a nation of immigrants. And even if you look at the cans of color who have had success within our nation, at the presidential level, I'm talking about President Obama and currently now Andrew Yang, who was the only person of color to make it into the December debates. Both of them are able to sustain that mythology and that narrative. And what has been removed from the stage are, many times, never even allowed on the stage is people who deconstruct that narrative, people like Kamala Harris, people like Cory Booker, people like myself, who have a very different history in our families that very loudly and boldly says, no, this is not a nation of immigrants. This is also a nation of people who were enslaved. And this is also a nation of people who were had genocide and ethnic cleansing enacted on them. And that's the more disruptive narrative that our nation has not yet allowed for very long, if at all, to be on the the, the primary presidential
0: stage. As you've been campaigning uh, to uh, the native peoples and uh, gearing up for this res the vote and uh, for getting signatures, um, we've kind of touched on what the Democratic Party has been doing in uh, their campaigning for presidency. Um, there also has been some uh, development uh, with the impeachment um hearings, and then the articles of impeachment by the House of Representatives. um, And there they are likely to sit. I don't know. uh, I don't think much will happen with them in in the Senate. Um, But as as some of that was unfolding, uh, you, you tweeted something to this is a paraphrase, uh, but something to the extent that the handling of impeachment proceedings uh, by the House uh, Democrats and the rumored handling handling by the GOP Senate is the perfect picture of what justice looks like in America today. Um, do you mean by can you unpack that a little bit for us?
1: Yeah. So what I really mean by that is when you look at, I I published an op-ed on some native media websites a few months ago. And the title of my op-ed that I sent it out with, it became a subtitle in some of the places that published it, said, if you think simply impeaching President Trump is the solution, then you don't understand the problem. And what I'm trying to highlight for people is that what is going on within our nation is that it's both sides are kind of showing the faults of our foundations. And so what, what we've learned is that there, for, if you're a white landowning male and you're engaged in either business or politics, there are very little consequences for your actions. Even if you break the law, there are very few consequences. Why? Because what we have is we have white landowning men responsible for holding white landowning men accountable within a system that was meant to benefit white landowning men. So many people today are, will lament, and I hear this frequently, oh, I remember when our nation used to be able to compromise and we could, we could you know, have people reaching across the aisles. Remember back in the 40s and 50s when there was this deeper unity within our national leadership? Well, if you look back to the 40s and 50s, even the 60s, what was going on? Well, segregation was happening. Natives were in boarding schools or marginalized to reservations. White supremacy was a bipartisan value. Congress was a white landowning male club almost exclusively. Yeah, of course they were able to reach across the aisle. (laughs) Some of their biggest divisive things were were agreed upon and settled and not, they weren't there. We have today, our Congress today is probably the most diverse Congress in the history of our country. We have more women, we have more people of color, we have more Native peoples, we have more LGBTQ members on. In our Congress than we've ever had at any point in our history. And what this means is these people have a very different memory of our nation's history than the white landowning men who are also there. And they are actually interested in holding some of the white landowning men accountable. And so this is where this inability to compromise is coming out (laughs) of. And there's actually this this fear. And, And so when we have Mitch McConnell standing up and saying I'm not an unbiased party in this trial <laughs> and he's working with the white house and their lawyers it's like yeah this is what this is what justice in the united states look like which is so what i was trying to get people to understand because i was using this as a teaching point when i made that tweet and because right now we have most Democrats and Republicans, to be honest, the majority of them white, they are aghast. Like they, the, the white Democrats are aghast. They're horrified at what the, what the right is doing, what the Republicans are doing. And the Republicans are horrified at what they see the Democrats doing. And they're both saying this is a travesty of justice. How can you treat our president this unfairly? Or how can you live with him doing these things? And they're, they're horrified at what the other side is doing. And what I'm trying to get people to understand is that disgust, that horror, that feeling that you feel right now when you look at what is happening within the other opposing party and about how they are creating this mockery of justice, that's how many people of color feel every day regarding the courts, regarding the constitution, regarding law enforcement in this nation. Hmm and i was trying to use that that what you're feeling right now this is the the reality that most people of color experience on a daily basis both sides can make a fairly compelling case that yes he's not being treated fairly and yes he is doing some egregious things right but the fact that both sides are willing to paint it either completely one way or completely the other to make this a completely binary issue is just flat out not accurate. Right. Uh, and we all know that at the end, it's not going to cost him anything. Because
0: something you said there, just um, has me thinking about um, the the long-term future because um, we have, I I think we talked in our previous conversation, I've talked with other people before as well that um, I don't, I don't believe that Donald Trump is um, came just out of, he's not an aberration out of thin air that uh, we have kind of been, he is uh, a, a symptom like he is the result of a symptom uh, that is a problem and has been a problem for a while um, in, in America. And, uh, as you talk about, we have the most diverse Congress that we've had uh, with women and people of color, and that uh, leading to tension. What is the like? What is the road ahead? Um, I I don't think either of us would say that the right answer would be to just give it all back to white landowning men, and then they can agree on stuff. So, what is the way to continue down diversity um, and and inclusion? but also to be able to uh, restore some sort of ability to work together.
1: Yeah, well, this is where I I go back to what's at the heart of my campaign, which is we need to have this national dialogue on race, gender, and class. We need to have a conversation I would put on par with the truth and the reconciliation commission that happened in South Africa, Rwanda, and Canada. You know, George Erasmus says that it's a common memory where common memory is lacking, where people don't share in the same past, there can be no community. So we have to find a way to create this common memory so that we can actually move forward into a healthier community. Um, And I, I cannot overstate this enough. This lack of a common memory is at the heart of so many of our nation's problems. The trauma, both the 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 post-traumatic stress as well as the perpetration-induced traumatic stress that is experienced by people of color and by white people at a multi-generational communal level, the fact that we've never dealt with that in any meaningful way at a national level is exacerbating the problems that we're having today. If we want to move this conversation forward, we need to find a way deal with our past. The challenge is, is that none of the political candidates are willing to engage that question or engage that problem. You well, know, in, 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 in the democratic field right now, we, are, we have questions about reparations for the descendants of slaves. That's a good conversation. We need to have that. I would agree, yes, we should pay reparations to the descendants of slaves. But no one on this stage that I've heard has actually said, you know what, we should abolish slavery. Because if you read the 13th Amendment, it says neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereas the property has been duly convicted shall exist within the U.S. So we've never abolished slavery. We just redefined and codified it under the jurisdiction of the criminal justice system. Right. And we're using it today to incarcerate people of color at a massive rate over white people. So Yes, let's have a conversation moving forward about reparations, but let's actually look back, not only at what we've done, but what we have right now, which is we have a legal system where slavery is allowed and we are using it extensively today to remove the civil rights primarily of people of color. And if we want to really move forward, it's not just about paying reparations, it's about actually abolishing the thing that caused the problem in the first place. Right. and yet no one on the democratic stage is willing to say that
0: well and i to to be able to engage that conversation and to uh, seek resolution it, it's necessarily going to uh mean that white land-owning men are going to have to give up some of the things that they've been hoarding <laughs> um, and I think that's why, you know, the conversation isn't happening. As you mentioned, the just the layout of how you have to campaign to become president, there are gatekeepers. And um, so I think, hopefully, we can get to a point where uh, people are willing, but I, I do think it is uh, important, not just for um, people of color, um, or for indigenous people for whoever to be campaigning and championing the things that that you are but also for uh white landowning men like myself to recognize that we we have benefited from an unjust system and to make things just means we will have to give some things up but that is yeah. for the greater good and that is for as you are your campaign um for all the people, making a, a country that works not just for yeah. the elite or the, the current elite, but for all of the
1: people. Yeah. If we if we want to build a nation where we the people truly means all the people, one of the things we have to do is we have to decenter whiteness. I'm not saying we have to oppress white people. I'm not saying we have to give them what they gave to the rest of the nation, but I am saying we need to decenter them. Now that's going to feel oppressive to many white people because when you're removed from a, a space of 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 being central and you're moved to the margins, that's gonna feel like you're being oppressed, but it's not. That just means we're treating you like everybody else. <laughs> right. One of the things I'm trying very hard to do, and this is why I'm campaigning first and foremost to the indigenous peoples of this nation, and I'm not allowing the white landowning men in Iowa and New Hampshire to be the gatekeeper for my campaign, is because I want to decenter that group. Does that mean I'm not going to campaign to them? No, I will eventually, in turn. But I'm not going to put them center in that dialogue. And I'm not going to give them the power that they think they have to control my campaign. Right. I actually have a strategy that allows me to get not only on the ballot in all 50 states, and not only into a national dialogue, but actually can put me in the White House. I have a strategy that I think will work, and it doesn't require centering white landowning men. That is going to feel oppressive to that demographic. It's not oppressive to them. It's just, I'm going to speak to them, and I'm not going to allow them. The way I, I, the, <laughs> I'm going to speak to them as just another group within the demographic instead of making their concerns and their issues central to everything about my campaign
0: instead of catering to them.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Um, well, I, I'm excited (laughs) for you and I hope that, um, we can see some, some movement in that direction. Um, I've, I've had you on uh, long enough here. I do want to just, um, talk to you about the the recent bombings uh before I fully let you go uh in the escalation in Iraq um as we record uh last night or I guess early this morning um the US uh launched a targeted drone attack uh at a Bagh- Baghdad airport uh killed uh Iranian major general uh Qas- is it Qasem Sole- Soleimani um And Iraqi militia commander um, Abu Abu Mahdi al al al-Muhadas, and um, so two top military officials in uh, Iran and Iraq, and this um, was was a surprise, I think, to uh, everyone, both in the U.S. and abroad. Um, It was a, a. step in escalation, a major step in escalation after there was some um there was a a bombing or an attack on December twenty seventh that killed a US uh civilian contractor, two Iraq police officers. A couple of days later the US retaliated, killed 25 militia fighters, um, and then there was um some protest um at the US embassy in Baghdad on New Year's Eve. Um they that was quieted, uh, mostly peacefully, uh, on new year's day. And then, uh, yesterday we had the bombing, um, that killed the two top officials. Um, this feels like a big deal, uh, regardless of, of what's next. Um, I don't even know, uh, (laughs) the, the right question to ask here. Um, but, for a president uh, who has run on wanting to remove troops from the Middle East and wanting to stop endless wars, um, this feels like a step in continuing uh, a US presence and a, a, a war presence in the Middle East that has been happening since uh, 2001,
1: 2003. Yeah. Um I, I have not released an official statement about this assassination yet. I am working on that, and we'll probably do that later today or tomorrow. But I, I can respond to your question because I think it's important to respond to. Um, and this is, again, I, I've followed this in the news, but you know I, I'm not privy to <laughs> any inside information right. or what's going on behind the scenes. And so I'm going to be um, slow to make uh, sweeping judgments at the moment. But, you know, back in 2003, I remember the day that we went to war against Iraq. I remember the day um, that we did Shock and Awe and we we began the bombing of Baghdad. And my heart was broken that day. And the thing I felt is just our country never learns. Hmm. And we just continue making the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. And I saw what. President Bush did in Iraq, and I see what President Trump is doing in Iraq again with Iran as just more of that process, and our, our nation doesn't learn. And to be honest, that day of the bombing in Baghdad, the day of the start of shock and awe, was the first day I pondered, considered the thought of running for president. I, am, I, I say this in my book, in, in my book on Selling Truth, one of the things I, I talk about in the history of, of the genocidal, ethnic cleansing, white supremacist legacy of Abraham Lincoln, which is one of the challenges we face as a nation is that we've never lost a war that matters. We've never hmm. been invaded. We've never lost land. We've never been occupied. We've never been disarmed as a nation. And we all know that it's the winners who write the history books. So the reason most of the nation doesn't know anything about the true legacy of Abraham Lincoln is because we won that war. Now, the war we won (laughs) wasn't the Civil War. That was just a minor spat between two white supremacist sides of the country. The war we won was the War of Manifest Destiny. Had Abraham Lincoln won the Civil War, but not been able to ethnically cleanse the the Dakota and the Winnebago from Minnesota, the Cheyenne and the Arapaho from Colorado, and the Navajo and the Mescalero Apache from New Mexico, which were the three in three states in the route of the primary routes for the transcontinental railway. Had he not been able to do that and not been able to make huge progress in completing manifest destiny, he would have not been held in such high regard. Now, in World War II, because again because the Victor's write the history. How would, if we pretend for a moment that Nazi Germany wins World War II, how would their history books treat Adolf Hitler? Well, he'd be a hero. Right. How would they treat the Holocaust? Well, we have Holocaust deniers today. Imagine if they won. What Holocaust? There was no Holocaust. This is exactly how our nation treats Abraham Lincoln and the ethnic cleansing of Native peoples. He's our greatest hero, and there was no ethnic cleansing. So one of the biggest challenges our nation faces is that we've never lost a war that matters so much that we are the only nation in the, in the world that has ever used nuclear weapons, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians in Japan. And we think, by and large, that we were heroes for doing so. Hmm. Why? Well, because we won the war. In his documentary, The Fog of War, James McNamara, talking about his role as an analyst, a statistician, in the Pacific Theater, working with General LeMay, planning the bombings of Japan, he stated that General LeMay said, if we lose this war, we will be tried as war criminals, and McNamara agreed because, he said, we were acting as war criminals. And so, when our nation retaliates for the most recent death of a contractor, which is horrible, and it's, I'm not saying it's right that that happened by any stretch of the imagination. But when we retaliate by assassinating one of the top generals of a nation that is working towards having nuclear arms, we have to take into account what we're doing. You know, I I've I, since the war in Iraq, two years later, less than that, a year and a half later, I moved with my family back to the Navajo Nation. And we lived for three years in a hogan in the middle of nowhere. No running water, no electricity out in the middle, six miles from the nearest paved road on a dirt road. Moved into one of the most powerless communities in our nation. And from that vantage point, I watched the Iraq war. I watched the war on terror. I watched the election of two presidents, both three years in the Hogan and eight more years in another part of the reservation. And I realized there's this huge difference between power and authority. Power is the ability to act. You can move things because you have might, you have muscle, you have money, you have weapons. Authority is the right of jurisdiction, the permission to act. Our nation, our leaders regularly talk about our power. We have the most mighty military in the history of the world. We have the most wealthy financial system in the history of the world. We talk, we gloat, we praise, we uphold our power on a daily basis. We almost never talk about authority. Why? Because we don't have any. Hmm. The United States loses its nuclear power power goes bankrupt. There's hardly a nation in the world that gives a crap what we say. Why? Because they know what we've done. They know what we did in Japan. They know what we did to African-Americans. They know what we did to Native peoples. The world knows this stuff. They may not say it to our white leaders' faces, but they know it. We have a ton of power. We have very little authority. And when you have a lot of power and no authority, you lose your ability to have healthy relationships in a diverse and pluralistic community. Especially if one of your sins as a nation is that of colonialism, and you've never been held to account for that. And so because our foreign policy has been run by men who believe in the lie, the mythology of American exceptionalism, which is rooted in the lie of white supremacy, and because they do not have a memory that includes the loss of any major war... And because they are so overwhelmed with this ability to press a button and destroy not just people, but cities and potentially even countries or even the entire globe, we have lost our ability to conduct ourselves well in a global community. I think, and it's a shame that the democratic process has weeded out candidates of color from the presidential primaries. I am quite certain that whatever white landowning male ends up winning the Democratic Party primary. I'm quite certain it will be a white landowning male. And then, of course, the Republicans are putting forth their own white landowning male with Donald Trump. There will be some debate back and forth about policy and differences, minor differences. But overall, there will be a deep agreement on the Mythology of American exceptionalism. When you look at the issue of American exceptionalism, the issue that the nation, our nation, is greater than any other nation, in most every aspect except for a few, that is not true. Education, we're in the middle of the road. Healthcare, we're at the bottom. Economic inequality, incarceration of people of color. We are these, (laughs) where we are truly exceptional. Where we are ahead and the shoulders above almost every other nation is in military spending, military bases on foreign soil. There we are ahead and shoulders above almost every other nation. The, the 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 places where our nation is truly exceptional is militarily. Not in how we use our military, but in the fact that we have a very, very big one and we're not afraid to use it. And because white America doesn't have a common memory. And has never lost a war that matters. War is a great way to bring national unity. And presidents who show an aggression or an aggressive stance on the global stage and who are not afraid to escalate situations militarily are held as strong and as heroes and as good leaders. And that's because of the mythology of American exceptionalism. So we need a leader, we need a president who has a different memory. Has a different experience, and who is not striving to reestablish America's greatness through its ability to kill people, which is where we have been truly great as a nation. Not only in our ability to kill people effectively, but to make it look like we're the good guys while doing so. We've done that with African people, we've done that with Native peoples, we've done that with civilians in Japan. This is what we do. We are very effective at killing people and making, selves, making ourselves look like the heroes because of it. And that is the mistake we keep making
0: hmm.
1: over and over and over and over again. And so when I heard last night that President Trump ordered the assassination of a top general who, it sounds very convincing, he was not a good person and he did not, he caused very bad things, but because This will now be, in some instances, narrated as a heroic thing to do, and it will galvanize a lot of people within our country. We're just making the same mistakes over and over and over again, and we're not going to learn. And it's why we need a diversity, not only within our candidates, but of the people we actually put into the White House.
0: Thank you to Mark Charles for coming on the Thinking Out Loud podcast. Once again, always appreciate his time and his insight. I would just encourage you all as well to perhaps check out Preemptive Love and their Love Anyway podcast, which they'll be, they will be—they are on the ground in Iraq, and so they are close to all of what is going on over there, and they are sharing stories uh, from the ground there, and I would encourage you to check them out, and as you follow along with news coverage, to also be following along with the coverage that they are providing as well. In addition to Mark Charles, I would also like to thank Ministry, Crate, and Lowercase People for the contributions that they have given to this show. For now, enjoy Audrey Assad's Your Peace Will Make Us One, and until next time.
2: seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. You are speaking truth to power, you are laying down our swords, replanting every vineyard till a brand new I've seen you